Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Skylark 3 by E.E. E. Doc Smith. Volume 7, Chapter 9, The Welcome to Norlamin. The Skylark was now days upon her way toward the sixth planet. Seaton gave the visiplates and the instrument board his customary careful scrutiny and rejoined the others. Still talking about the human fish, Dottie Dimple? he asked as he stroked his villainous pipe. Peculiar tribe of porpoises, but I'm strong for them. They're the most like our own kind of folk, as far as ideas go, of anybody we've seen yet. In fact, they're more like us than a lot of human beings we all know. I like them immensely. You couldn't like them any other way. I mean, look at their size. Oh, you're terrible, Dick. Easy as I am, I can't stand any such joke as that was going to be. But really, I think they're just perfectly fine, in spite of their being so, well, funny-looking. Mrs. Carfon is just simply sweet, even if she does look a little like a walrus. And that cute little seal of a baby was just too perfectly cutting for words. And that boy Seven is keen as mustard, too. He should be, put in Crane dryly. He probably has as much intelligence now as any one of us. Do you think so? asked Margaret. He acted like any other boy, but he did seem to understand things remarkably well. He would. They're way ahead of us in most things. Seaton glanced at the two women quizzically and then turned to Crane. As for their being bald, this was one time, Mart, when those two phenomenal heads of hair our two little girlfriends are so proud of didn't make any kind of a hit at all. They probably regard that black thatch of pegs and Dot's auburn mop as relics of a barbarous and prehistoric age, about as we would regard the hirsute hide of a Neanderthal man. That may be so, Dorothy replied unconcernedly, but we aren't planning on living there, so why worry about it? I like them anyway, and I believe that they like us. They acted that way. But say, Mart... If that planet is so old that all their land area has been eroded away, how come they've got so much water left? They've got quite an atmosphere, too. The air pressure, said Crane, while greater than that now obtaining upon Earth, was probably of the order of magnitudes, about three meters of mercury, originally. As to the erosion, they might have had more water to begin with than our Earth had. Yeah, that would account for it all right, said Dorothy. There's one thing I want to ask you two scientists, Margaret said. Everywhere we've gone, except on that one world that Dick thinks is a wandering planet, we've found the intelligent life pretty much like human beings. How do you account for that? There, Mart, is one for the massive old bean of yours to concentrate on, challenged Seaton. Then as Crane considered the question, in silence, for some time he went on. I'll answer it myself, then, by asking another. Why not? Why shouldn't they be? Remember, man is the highest form of earthly life, at least in our own opinion, and as far as we know. In our wanderings, we have picked out planets quite similar to our own in the point of atmosphere and temperature, and within narrow limits of mass as well. It stands to reason that under such similar conditions, there would be similar results. How about it, Mart? Is that reasonable? 
Well, it seems plausible in a way, conceded Crane. But it is probably not universally true. Sure not. Couldn't be, hardly. No doubt we could find a lot of worlds inhabited by all kinds of intelligent things, freaks that we can't even begin to imagine. But they would probably be occupying planets entirely different from ours in some essential way. Atmosphere, temperature, mass. Yeah, Dick, but the Fenachrone world is entirely different, Dorothy argued. And they're still more or less human-looking. They're bipeds with recognizable features. I've been studying that record with you, you know, and their world has so much more mass than ours that their gravitation is simply frightful. Well, that much difference is comparatively slight. Not a real fundamental difference at all. I mean, I met a hundred or so times either way, greater or less, and even their gravitation has modified their structure a lot. Suppose it had been 50 times as great as it is. What would they look like then? Also, their atmosphere is pretty similar to ours in composition, and their temperature bearable. It's my opinion that atmosphere and temperature have more to do with evolution than anything else, and that the mass of the planet runs a poor third. You may be right, admitted Crane, but it seems to me, Dick, that you are arguing from insufficient premises. Sure I am. Almost no premises at all. I would be just about as well justified in deducing the structure of a range of mountains from a superficial study of three pebbles picked up in a creek near them. However, we can get an idea sometime when we've got a lot of time on our hands. How? Remember that planet we struck on on the first trip that had an atmosphere composed mostly of gaseous chlorine? In our ignorance, we assumed that life there was impossible and didn't stop. Well, it may be just as well that we didn't. If we go back there, protected as we are with our rays and stuff, it wouldn't surprise me a bit to find life there, and lots of it. And I've got a hunch that it'll be a form of life that'll make your grandfather's whiskers curl right up into a ball. You get the weirdest ideas, Dick, protested Dorothy. I hope you aren't planning on exploring it just to prove your point. Well, I never thought of it before. Can't do it now anyway. We've got our hands full. However, after we get this metachrome mess cleaned up, we'll have to do just that little thing, won't we, Mart? As that intellectual guy said while he was insisting upon dematerializing us, science demands it. By all means, we should be in a position to make contributions to science and fields as yet untouched. Most assuredly, we shall investigate those points. Then they'll go home alone, won't they, Peggy? Absolutely. We've seen some pretty middling, horrible things already, and if these two men of ours call the frightful things we have seen normal and are planning on deliberately hunting up things that even they will consider monstrous, you and I most certainly shall stay home. Ha! You say it easy. Mouse back, Peg. You struck a rubber fence. And you, you red-headed little fraud, you know you wouldn't let me go to the corner store for a can of tobacco without insisting on tagging along. Why, you... began Dorothy hotly, but she broke off in amazement and gasped. For heaven's sake, what was that? What was what? It missed me. It went right through you. It was a kind of funny little cloud, like smoke or something. 
It came right through the ceiling like a flash, went through you, and on down through the floor. And there it is. It's back again. Before their staring eyes, a vague, nebulous something moved rapidly upward through the floor and passed upward through the ceiling. Dorothy leapt to Seaton's side, and he put his arm around her reassuringly. It's all right, folks. I think I know what that thing is. We'll shoot it now, Dorothy implored. It's one of those projections from where we're heading, trying to get our range. It's the most welcome sight these weary old eyes have rested upon for many a long and dreary moon. They probably located us from our power plant rays. We're an awful long ways off yet, though, and going like a streak of greased lightning, so they're having trouble in holding us. They're friendly, we already know that. They probably want to talk to us. It'd make it easier for them if we shut off our power and drift at constant velocity, but we use up valuable time and throw our calculations all out of whack. We'll let them try to match our acceleration. If they can do that, they're probably really good. The apparition reappeared, oscillating back and forth irregularly, passing through the Aranac walls, through the furniture, instrument boards, and even through the mighty power plant, as if there was nothing there. Eventually, however, it remained stationary a foot or so above the floor of the control room. Then it began to increase in density, until apparently a man stood before them, his skin like that of all the inhabitants of the planets of the green suns, was green. He was tall and well-proportioned, when judged by earthly standards, except for his head, which was overly large, and which was particularly massive above the eyes and backward from the ears. He was evidently of great age, for what little of his face was visible was seamed and wrinkled, and his long, thick mane of hair and his square-cut, yard-long beard were dazzling white, only faintly tinged with green. While not in any sense transparent, or even translucent, it was evident that the apparition before them was not composed of flesh and blood. He looked at each of the four earth beings intensely for a moment, and then pointed toward the table upon which stood the mechanical educator, and Seaton placed it in front of the peculiar visitor. As Seaton donned a headset and handed one to the stranger, the latter stared at him, impressing upon his consciousness that he was to be given a knowledge of English. Seaton pressed the lever, receiving as he did only a sensation of unbroken calm, a serenity profound and untroubled, and the projection spoke. Dr. Seaton, Mr. Crane, ladies, welcome to Norlamin, the planet toward which you are now flying. We have been awaiting you for more than five thousand years of your time. It has been a mathematical certainty. It has been graven upon the very sphere itself that in time someone would come to us from without this system, bringing a portion, however small, of Rovalon, of the Medal of Power, of which there is not even the most minute trace in our entire solar system. For more than 5,000 years, our instruments have been set to detect the vibrations which would herald the advent of the user of that metal. Now you have come, and I perceive that you have vast stores of it. Being yourselves seekers of truth, you will share it with us gladly, as we will instruct you in many things you wish to know. Allow me to operate the educator, 
I would gaze into your minds and reveal my own to your sight. But first, I must tell you, your machine is too rudimentary to work at all well, and with your permission I will make certain minor alterations. Seaton nodded permission, and from the eyes and hands of the figure there leapt visible streams of force, which seized the transformers, coils, and tubes, and reformed and reconnected them, under Seaton's bulging eyes, into an entirely different mechanism. Oh, I see what you're doing, he gasped. Say, what are you, anyway? Pardon me, in my eagerness I became forgetful. I am Orlan, the first astronomer of Norlamin, in my observatory upon the surface of the planet. This that you see before you is simply my projection, composed of forces for which you have no name in your language. You can cut it off if you wish with your ray screens, which even I can see are of surprisingly high order of efficiency. There. This educator will now work very well. Please put on the remodeled headsets, all of you. And they did so, and the rays of force moved levers and switches and dials as positively as human hands could have moved them, and with infinitely greater speed and precision. As the dials moved, each brain received clearly and plainly a knowledge of the customs, language, and manners of the inhabitants of Norlamin. Each mind became suffused with a vast, immeasurable peace, calm power, and depth and breadth of mental vision, theretofore undreamed of. Looking deep into his mind, they sensed a quiet, placid certainty, beheld power and knowledge to them illimitable, perceived depths of wisdom to them unfathomable. Then from his mind into theirs there flowed smoothly a mighty stream of comprehension of cosmic phenomenon. They hazily saw infinitely small units grouped into planetary formations to form practically dimensionless particles. These particles in turn grouped to form slightly larger ones, and after a long succession of such grouping, they knew that the comparatively gigantic aggregates which then held their attention were in reality electrons and protons, the smallest units recognized by earthly science. They clearly understood the combination of these electrons and protons into atoms. They perceived plainly the way in which atoms built up molecules and comprehended the molecular structure of matter. In mathematical thoughts only dimly grasped even by Seton and Crane, were laid before them the fundamental laws of physics, electricity, gravitation, and chemistry. They saw globular aggregations of matter, the suns and their planets, comprising solar systems, saw solar systems in accordance with those immutable laws grouped into galaxies, galaxies in turn. Here the flow was suddenly shut off as though a valve had been closed, and the astronomer spoke. Pardon me. Your brains should be stored only with the material you desire most and can use to the best advantage, for your mental capacity is even more limited than my own. Please understand, I speak in no derogatory sense. It is only that your race has many thousands of generations to go before your minds should be stored with knowledge indiscriminately. 
we ourselves have not yet reached that stage, and we are perhaps millions of years older than you. And yet, he continued musing, I envy you. Knowledge is, of course, relative, and I can know so little. Time and space have yielded not an iota of their mystery to our most penetrant minds, and whether we delve baffled into the unknown smallness of the small, or whether we peer blind and helpless into the unknown largeness of the large, it is still the same. Infinity is comprehensible only to the infinite one, the all-shaping force directing and controlling the universe and the unknowable sphere. The more we know, the vaster the virgin fields of investigation open to us, and the more infinitesimal becomes our knowledge. But I am perhaps keeping you from much more important activities. As you approach Nolamin more nearly, I shall guide you to my observatory. I am glad indeed it is in my lifetime you have come to us, and I await anxiously the opportunity of greeting you in the flesh. The years remaining to me of this cycle of existence are few, and I had almost ceased hoping to witness your coming. The projection vanished instantaneously, and the four stared at each other in an incredulous daze of astonishment. Seaton finally broke the stunned silence. Well, I'll be kicked to death by little red spiders. Mark, did you just see what I saw? Or did I get tight on something without knowing it? That sure burned me up. Breaks me off right at the ankles just to think of it. Crane walked to the educator in silence. He examined it and felt the changed coils and transformers and gently shook the new insulating base of the great power tube. Still in silence, he turned his back and walked around the instrument board, read the meters, and then went back and again inspected the educator. It was real and not a higher development of hypnotism, as at first I thought it might be, he reported seriously. Hypnotism, if sufficiently advanced, might have affected us in that fashion, even to teaching us a strange new language, but by no possibility could have had such an effect upon copper, steel, bakelite, and glass. It was certainly real, and while I cannot begin to understand it, I will say that your imagination has certainly vindicated itself. A race of beings who can do such things as that can do almost anything. You have been right from the start. Then we can beat those horrible Fenachrone after all, cried Dorothy, and she threw herself into her husband's arms. Do you remember, Dick, that I hailed you once as Columbus and San Salvador? asked Margaret unsteadily from Crane's encircling arm. What can a man be called who, from the sheer depths of his imagination, called forth the means of saving from destruction all the civilization of millions of entire worlds? Don't talk that way, please, folks. Seaton was plainly very uncomfortable. He blushed intensely, the burning red tide rising in waves up to his hair as he wriggled in embarrassment like any schoolboy. Mart's done most of it anyway, you know. And even at that, we're not out of the woods yet, by forty-seven rows of apple trees. You will admit, will you not, though, that we can see our way out of the woods at least, and that you yourself feel rather relieved? asked Crane. 
I think we'll be able to pull their corks down, all right, after we get some dope. It's a cinch they've either got the stuff we need or know how to get it. And if that zone is impenetrable, I'll bet they'll be able to dope out something just as good. Relieved? Yeah, that doesn't half-tell it, guy. I feel as if I had just pitched off the old man of the sea who's been sitting on my neck. What say you ladies get your fiddle and guitar and will sing us a little song? I feel kind of relieved. They had me worried, some. It's the first time I've felt like singing since we cut up that warship. Dorothy brought out her so-called fiddle. It was, in fact, a Stradivarius, formerly cranes, which he had given her. Margaret got out her guitar, and they sang one rollicking number after another. Though by no means a metropolitan opera quartet, their voices were all better than mediocre, and they had all sung together so much that they harmonized readily. Why don't you play us some real music, Dottie? asked Margaret after a time. You haven't practiced for ages. I haven't felt like playing lately, but I do now, said Dorothy. She stood up and swept the bow over the strings. She was a doctor of music and violin, and an accomplished musician, playing upon one of the finest instruments the world has ever known, and she was lifted out of herself by relief from the dread of the Fenachrone invasion, and that splendid violin expressed every subtle nuance of her thought. She played rhapsodies and paeans and solos by the great masters, she played vivacious dances, then Tramere and Lebestrom. At last she swept into immortal meditation, and as the last note died away, Seaton held out his arms. You're a blinding flash and a deafening report, Dottie Dimple, and I do love you, he declared, and his eyes and his arms spoke volumes that his light utterance had left unsaid. Norleman was now close enough so that its image almost filled number six visiplate. The four wanderers studied it with interest. Partially obscured by clouds and with its polar regions, two glaring caps of snow. They would be green in a few months when the planet would swing inside the orbit of its sun around the vast central luminary of that complex solar system. It made a magnificent picture. They saw sparkling blue oceans and huge green continents of unfamiliar outlines. So terrific was the velocity of the space cruiser that the image grew larger as they watched it, and soon the field of vision could not contain the image of the whole disk. Well, I expect Orlon will be showing up pretty quick now, remarked Seaton, and it was not long until the projection appeared in the air of the control room. Greetings, terrestrials. With your permission, I shall direct your flight. Permission granted, the figure floated across the room to the board, and the rays of force centered the visiplate, changed the direction of the bar a trifle, decreased slightly their negative acceleration, and directed a stream of force upon the steering mechanism. We shall alight upon the grounds of my observatory, upon Nurlamin, in 7,428 seconds, he announced presently. The observatory will be upon the dark side of Norlamin when we arrive, but I have a force operating upon the steering mechanism 
which will guide the vessel along the required curved path. I shall remain with you until we land, and we may converse upon any topic of most interest to you. We've got a topic of interest, all right. That's what we came out here for. But it would take too long to tell you about it. I'll just show you. He brought out the magnetic brain recording and threaded it into the machine and handed the astronomer a headset. Orlon put it on and touched the lever, and for an hour there was unbroken silence as the monstrous brain of the menace was studied by the equally capable intellect of the mortal Minion scientist. There was no pause in the motion of the magnetic tape, no repetition. Orlon's brain absorbed the information as fast as it could be sent, and he understood that frightful mind in every particular. As the end of the tape was reached and the awful record ended, a shadow passed over Orlon's face. Truly, that is depraved evolution. It is sad to contemplate such a perversion of a really excellent brain. They have power, even as you have, and they have the will to destroy, which is a thing I cannot understand. However, if it is graven upon the sphere that we are to pass, it means only that upon the next plane we shall continue our searches. Let us hope with better tools and greater understanding than we now possess. Wait a minute, snapped Seaton gravely. Are you just going to take this lying down? You're not going to put up a fight at all? What can we do? Violence is contrary to our very natures. No man of Nolamin could offer any but passive resistance. You could do a lot if you want to. Put on that headset again. Get me a plan. Offer suggestions your far abler brain may come up with. As the human scientist poured his plan of battle into the brain of the astronomer, Orlan's face cleared. It is graven upon the sphere that the Fenachrone shall pass, he said finally. What you ask of us, we can do. I have only a general knowledge of rays, as they are not in the province of the Orlan family, but the student Roval of the family Roval of rays has all present knowledge of such phenomenon. Tomorrow I will bring you together. I have little doubt he will be able, with the help of your medal of power, to solve your problem. I don't quite understand what you said about a whole family studying one subject, and yet having only one student in that subject, said Dorothy in perplexity. A little explanation is perhaps necessary, replied Orlon. First, you must know, every man of Nolamin is a student, most of us students of science. With us, labor means mental effort, that is, study. We perform no physical or manual labor, save for exercise, as all our mechanical work is done by forces. This state of things, having endured for many thousands of years, it long ago became evident. Specialization was necessary to avoid duplication of effort, and to ensure complete coverage of any field of study. Soon, 
it was discovered very little progress was being made in any branch. So much was known that it took practically a lifetime to review that which had already been accomplished in a narrow field and highly specialized one. Many points were studied for years before it was discovered the identical work had been done before and either forgotten or overlooked. To remedy this condition, the mechanical educator was developed. Once it was perfected, a new system was begun. Each man was assigned to each small subdivision of scientific endeavor to study it intensely. When he became old, each man chose a successor, usually a son, and transferred his own knowledge to the younger student. He also made a complete recording of his own brain, in much the same way as you recorded the brain in the phenochrome. These records are all stored in a great central library as permanent references. All these things being true, now a young person may need only finish an elementary education, just enough to learn to think, which takes only about 25 or 30 years, and then he is ready to begin actual work. When all that time comes, he receives in one day all the knowledge of his specialty, which has been accumulated by his predecessors during thousands of years of intensive study. Wow, Seaton whistled. No wonder you folks know something. With that start, I believe I might know something myself. As an astronomer, you may be interested in this star chart and stuff, or do you know all about that already? No, the Fenachrone are far ahead of us in that subject. Because of their observatories out in open space and their gigantic reflectors, which cannot be used through any atmosphere, we are further hampered by having darkness for only a few hours at a time and only in the winter, when our planet is outside the orbit of our sun around the great central sun of our entire system. However, with the Rovolon you have brought us, we shall have real observatories far out in space, and for that I personally will be indebted more than I can ever express. As for the chart, I hope to have the pleasure of examining it while you are conferring with Roval of Rays. How many families are working on rays? Just the one? One upon each kind of ray. That is, each of the ray families knows a great deal about all kinds of vibrations of the ether, but is specializing upon one narrow field. Take, for instance, the rays you are most interested in, those able to penetrate a zone of force. From my own slight and general knowledge, I know it would be, of necessity, a ray of the fifth order. These are very new. They have been under investigation only a few hundred years. And Rovald is the only student who would be well informed upon them. Shall I explain the orders of rays more fully than I did by means of the educator? Please. You assume we knew more than we did. So a little explanation would help. All ordinary vibrations, that is, all molecular and material ones, such as light, heat, electricity, radio, and the like, were arbitrarily called waves of the first order, 
to distinguish them from waves of the second order, which are given off by particles of the second order, which you know as protons and electrons, in their combination to form atoms. Your scientist Millikan discovered these rays for you, and in your language they are known as Millikan or cosmic rays. When some time later, when sub-electrons were identified, quarks, the rays given off by their combination into electrons, or by disruption of electrons, these were called rays of the third order. These rays are most interesting and useful. In fact, they do all our mechanical work. They, as a class, are called protoelectricity, and bear the same relation to ordinary electricity that electricity does to talk. Both are pure energy and interconvertible. Unlike electricity, however, it may be converted into many forms by fields of force in a way comparable to that of white light being resolved into colors by a prism, or rather more like the way alternating current is changed to direct current by a motor generator set with attendant changes in properties. There is a complete spectrum of more than 500 factors, each as different from the others as red is from green. Continuing further, particles of the fourth order give rise to rays of the fourth order, and those of the fifth rays of the fifth order. Fourth order rays have been investigated quite thoroughly, but only mathematically and theoretically as they are excessively short wavelength and capable of being generated only by breaking down matter itself into corresponding particles. However, it has been shown that they are quite similar to protoelectricity in their general behavior. Thus, the power that propels your space vessel, your attractors, your repellers, your object compass, your zone of force, all these things, are simply a few of the many hundreds of wave bands of the fourth order, all of which you doubtless would have worked out for yourselves in time. Very little is known, even in theory, of the rays of the fifth order, although they have been shown to exist. You know, for a guy having no knowledge, you seem to know a lot about rays. How about the fifth order? Is that as far as they go? My knowledge is slight and very general, only such as I must have in order to understand my own subject. The fifth order is certainly not the end. It is probably scarcely a beginning. We think now the orders extend to infinite smallness, just as galaxies are grouped into larger aggregations, which are probably in their turn only tiny units in a scheme infinitely large. Over 6,000 years ago, the last third-order rays were worked out, and certain peculiarities in their behavior led the then Roval to discover the existence of the fourth order. Successive generations of the Roval proved their existence, determined the conditions of their liberation, and found this metal of power was the only catalyst able to decompose matter and liberate the rays. This metal which was called Rovolon, after Roval, was first described upon theoretical grounds and later found by spectroscopy in certain stars, notably in one star only 
eight light years away, but not even the most infinitesimal trace of it exists in our entire solar system. Since these discoveries, the many Roval have been perfecting the theory of the fourth order, beginning that of the fifth and awaiting your coming. The present Roval, like myself and many others, whose work is almost at a standstill, is waiting with all-consuming interest to greet you as soon as the Skylark can be landed upon our planet. Neither your rocket ships nor your projections could get you any Rovalon? No. Every hundred years or so, someone develops a new type of rocket he thinks may stand a slight chance of making the journey. But not one of these venturesome youths has yet returned. Either that sun has no planets, or else the rocket ships have failed. Our projections are useless, as they can be driven only a very short distance upon our present carrier wave. With a carrier of the fifth order, we could drive a projection to any point in the galaxy, since its velocity would be millions of times that of light, and the power necessary reduced accordingly. But as I have said, such waves cannot be generated without Rovalon. I hate to break this up. I'd like to listen to you talk for a week, but we're going to have to land pretty quickly here, and it looks as though we're going to land pretty hard. We will land soon, but not hard, replied Orlon confidently. And the landing was as he foretold. The Skylark was falling with an ever-decreasing velocity, but so fast was the descent that seemed to the watchers as though they'd crashed through the roof of a huge, brilliantly lit building upon which they were dropping, and bury themselves many feet into the ground underneath it. But they did not strike the observatory. So incredibly accurate were the calculations of the Norlaminian astronomer, and so inhumanly precise were the controls he had set upon their bar, that as they touched the ground, after barely clearing the domed roof, and he shut off the power, the passengers felt only a sudden decrease in acceleration like that following the coming to rest of a rapidly moving elevator, after it had completed a downward journey. I shall join you in person very shortly, Orlon said, and the projection vanished. Well, folks, we're here, on another new world. Not quite as thrilling as the first one, was it? And Seaton stepped toward the door. What about the air composition, density, gravity, temperature, and so on? Perhaps we should make a few tests before we go out there, said Crane. Didn't you get that on the educator? I thought you did. Gravity a little less than seven-tenths. Air composition, same as Osnome and Desor. Pressure, about halfway between Earth and Osnome. Temperature like Osnome most of the time, but fairly comfortable in the winter. There's snow at the poles now, but this observatory is only about ten degrees away from the equator. They don't wear clothes enough to flag a handcar with here, except when they have to. Let's go. He opened the door, and the four travelers stepped out upon a close-cropped lawn, a turf whose blue-green softness would shame an oriental rug. The landscape was illuminated by a soft and mellow, yet intense green light, which emanated from no visible source. As they paused to glance about them, they saw that the Skylark had lit in exactly the center of a circular enclosure a hundred yards in diameter, walled in by row upon row of shrubbery, statuary, and fountains. 
all bathed in ever-changing billows of light. At only one point was the circle broken. There the walls did not come together, but continued on to border a lane leading up to the massive structure of cream and green marble topped by its enormous glassy dome, the Observatory of Orlon. Welcome to Nolamin, terrestrials. The calm voice of the astronomer greeted them, and Orlon in the flesh shook hands cordially in the American fashion with each of them in turn and placed around each neck a crystal chain from which depended a small Norlaminian chronometer radiophone. Behind him there stood four other old men. These men are already acquainted with each of you, but you do not as yet know them. I present Fodan, chief of the five of Norlamin, Roval, about whom you know, Astron, the first of energy, and Satrazan, the first of chemistry. Orlan fell in beside Seton, and the party turned toward the observatory. As they walked along, the earth people stared, held by the unearthly beauty of the grounds. The hedge of shrubbery from ten to twenty feet high, and which shut out all sight of everything outside of it, was one mass of vivid green and flaring crimson leaves. Each twig and leaf grew meticulously into its precise place in a fantastic geometrical scheme. Just inside this boundary there stood a ring of statues of heroic size. Some were single figures of men and women. Some were busts. Some were groups in natural or allegorical poses. All were done with consummate skill and feeling. Between the statues there were fountains, magnificent bronze and glass groups of the strange aquatic denizens of this strange planet, bathed in geometrically shaped sprays, screens, and columns of water. Winding around between the statues and the fountains, there was a moving, scintillating wall, and upon the waters and upon the wall there played torrents of color, cataracts of harmoniously blended light, reds, blues, yellows, and greens. Every color of their peculiar green spectrum and every conceivable combination of those colors writhed and flamed in ineffable splendor upon those deep and living screens of falling water and upon that shimmering wall. As they entered the lane, Seton saw with amazement that what he had supposed a wall, now close at hand, was not a wall at all, it was composed of myriads of individual sparkling jewels of every known color, for the most part self-luminous, and each gem, apparently entirely unsupported, was dashing in and out and along among its fellows, weaving and darting here and there, flying at headlong speed along an extremely tortuous but evidently carefully calculated path. "'What can that be anyway, Dick?' whispered Dorothy, and Seaton turned to his guide. "'Pardon my curiosity, Orlon, but would you mind explaining the why of that moving wall? We don't get it.' "'Not at all. This garden has been the private retreat of the family of Orlon for many thousands of years, and women of our house have been beautifying it since its inception. You may have observed the statuary is very old. No such work has been done for ages. Modern art 
has developed along the lines of colour and motion, hence the lighting effects and tapestry wall. Each gem is held upon the end of a minute pencil of force, and all the pencils are controlled by a machine which has a key for every jewel in the wall. Crane, the methodical one, stared at the innumerable flashing jewels and asked, It must have taken a prodigious amount of time to complete such an undertaking. Oh, it is far from complete. In fact, it has scarcely begun. It was started only four hundred years ago. Four hundred years? exclaimed Dorothy. Do you live that long? How long will it take to finish it? What will it be like when it's done? None of us will live longer than about one hundred and sixty years. At about that age, most of us decide to pass. When this tapestry wall is finished, it will not be simply form and color as it is now. It will be a portrayal of the history of Norlamin, from the first cooling of the planet. It will, in all probability, require thousands of years to complete. You see, time is of little importance to us, and workmanship is everything. My companion will continue working upon it until we decide to pass. My son's companion may continue. In any event, many generations of the women of Orlan will work upon it until it is complete. When it is done, it will be a thing of beauty as long as Norlamin shall endure. But suppose that your wife's son isn't that kind of an artist. Suppose she should want to do music or painting or something else, asked Dorothy curiously. That is quite possible, for fortunately our art is not yet entirely intellectual, as is our music. There are many unfinished artistic projects in the house of Orlan, and if the companion of my son should not find one to her liking, she will be at liberty to continue anything else she may have begun, or start an entirely new project of her own. You have a family, then? Margaret asked. I'm afraid I didn't understand things very well when you gave them to us over the educator. I sent things too fast for you, not knowing that your educator was new to you, a thing with which you were not thoroughly familiar. I will therefore explain some things in language, since you are not familiar with the mechanism of thought transference. The five, a self-perpetuating body, do what governing is necessary for the entire planet. Their decrees are founded upon self-evident truth and are therefore the law. Population is regulated according to the needs of the planet, and since much work is now in progress, an increase in population was recommended by the five. My companion and I therefore had three children, instead of the customary two. By lot it fell to us to have two boys and one girl. One of the boys will assume my duties when I pass. The other will take over a part of some branch of science that has grown too complex for one man to handle as a specialist. In fact, he has already chosen his specialty and been accepted for it. He is to be the 967th of chemistry, the student of the asymmetric carbon atom, which will thus be his specialty from this time henceforth. 
It was not long ago that the most perfect children were born of parents in the full prime of mental life, that is, one hundred years of age. Therefore, with us, each generation covers one hundred years. The first twenty-five years of a child's life are spent at home with his parents, during which he acquires his elementary education in the common schools. Then boys and girls alike move to the country of youth, where they spend another twenty-five years. There they develop their brains and initiative by conducting any research they choose. Most of us at that age solve all the riddles of the universe, only to discover later our solutions have been fallacious. However, much really excellent work is done in the country of youth, primarily because of the new and unprejudiced viewpoints of the virgin minds there at work. In that country, also, each finds his life's companion, the one necessary to round out mere existence into a perfection of living that no person, man or woman, can ever know alone. I need not speak to you of the wonders of love or of the completion and fullness of life that it brings. For all four of you, children though you are, know love in full measure. At fifty years of age, the man, now mentally mature, is recalled to his family home, as his father's brain is now losing some of its vigor and keenness. The father then turns over his work to the son by means of the educator, and when the weight of the accumulated knowledge of a hundred thousand generations of research is impressed upon the son's brain, his play is over. What does the father do then? Having made his brain record, about which I have told you, he and his companion, for she has in similar fashion turned over her work to her successor, retire to the country of age, where they rest and relax after their century of effort. They do whatever they care to do, for as long as they please to do it. Finally, after assuring themselves that all is well with the children, they decide that they are ready for the change. Then side by side as they have labored they pass now at the door of the observatory dorothy paused and shrank back against seaton her eyes widening as she stared at orlon no daughter why should we fear the change he answered her unspoken question calm serenity in every inflection of his quiet voice the life principle is unknowable to the finite mind as is the all-controlling force. But even though we know nothing of the sublime goal toward which it is tending, any person ripe for the change can, and of course does, liberate the life principle so that its progress may be unimpeded. In the spacious room of the observatory in which the terrestrials and their Norlaminian hosts had been long engaged in the study and discussion, Seaton finally rose and extended a hand toward his wife. Well, that's that, then, Orlon, I guess. We've been thirty hours without sleep, and for us that's a long time. I'm getting so dopey, I can't think a lick. We'd better go back to the Skylark and turn in. After we've slept nine hours or so, I'll go to Roval's laboratory, and Crane'll come back here to you. You need not return to your vessel, said Orlon. I know its somewhat cramped quarters have been irksome, Apartments have been prepared here for you. 
we shall have a meal here together, and then we shall retire to meet again tomorrow. As he spoke, a tray laden with appetizing dishes appeared in the air in front of each person. As Seaton resumed his seat, the tray followed him, remaining always in the most convenient position. Crane glanced at Seaton questioningly, and Satrazon, the first of chemistry, answered his thought before he could voice it. The food before you, unlike that which is before us of Norlamin, is wholesome for you. It contains no copper, no arsenic, no heavy metals. In short, nothing in the least harmful to your chemistry. It is balanced with carbohydrates, proteins, fats, and sugars, and contains the due proportion of each of the various accessory nutritional factors. You will find the flavors are agreeable to each of you. Synthetic, huh? You got us analyzed. Seaton stated this rather than asked, as with knife and fork he attacked the thick, rare, and beautifully broiled steak, which, with its mushrooms and other delicate trimmings, lay upon his rigid, although unsupported, tray. Noticing as he did so that the Norlaminians ate with tools entirely different from those they had supplied to their earthly guests. Entirely synthetic. Satrazan made answer, except for the sodium chloride necessary. As you already know, sodium and chlorine are very rare throughout our system. Therefore, the force upon the food supply took from your vessel the amount of salt required for the formula. We have been unable to synthesize atoms for the same reason that the labors of so many others have been hindered, because of the lack of Romulon. Now, however, my science shall progress as it should, and for that I join with my fellow scientists in giving you thanks for the service you have rendered us. We thank you instead, replied Seaton, for the service we've been able to do is slight compared to what you're giving us in return, but it seems that you speak quite impersonally of the force upon the food supply. Did you yourself direct the preparation of these meats and vegetables? Oh, no. I merely analyzed your tissues, surveyed the food supplies you carried, discovered your individual preferences, and set up the necessary integrals in the mechanism. The forces did the rest, and will continue to do so as long as you remain upon this planet. Fruit salad always was my favorite dish, Dorothy said after a couple of bites, and this one is just too perfectly divine. It doesn't taste like any other fruit I've ever eaten, either. I think it must be the same ambrosia that the old pagan gods used to eat. If all you did was to set up the integrals, how do you know what you are going to have for the next meal? asked Crane. We have no idea what the form, flavor, or consistency of any dish will be, came the surprising answer. We know only that the flavor will be agreeable, and that it will agree with the form and consistency of the substance, that the composition will be well-balanced chemically. You see, all the details of flavor, form, texture, and so on, are controlled by a device, something like one of your kaleidoscopes. The integrals render impossible any unwholesome, unpleasant, or unbalanced combination of any nature, and everything else is left to the mechanism, which operates upon pure chance. Some system, whistled Seaton with the others, and resumed his vigorous attack upon the long-delayed supper. 
The meal over, the earthly visitors were shown to their rooms and fell into a deep, dreamless sleep.